If you're a Cubs fan and you've been to a game at Wrigley Field, then you're probably aware of this tradition that if the opposing team hits a home run and you're lucky enough to catch that ball, you must throw it back. You must throw that ball back on the field. It's just an act of defiance. You know, normally in any other major league ballpark, when a ball's hit in your direction, even if it's a foul ball, everybody in that section of the stadium, they just go crazy. I mean, everybody's scrambling to get the treasure, and whoever winds up getting the ball is considered to be a very lucky fan, but not at Wrigley Field. There's just this understanding among all Cubs fans that if a player in the opposing team hits a home run, that ball's got to go back. You must throw the ball back. So if you've ever been to that ballpark, you've probably seen this happen. Somebody comes to Wrigley Field for the very first time, and they don't know anything about this tradition. Or maybe it's a Cardinals fan. <laughs> and they're sitting out there in the right field ble bleachers, which is a dangerous place to be if you're trying to root for the other team. And a visiting player hits a home run, and they're the person that catches the ball. Now, normally, in the other ballpark, you're thinking to yourself, wow, what a treat, what a delight. I got the ball. But not at Wrigley Field. Immediately, the pressure begins to build. Build All 40,000 fans now turn and look in your direction because they're expecting you to do something. They want you to throw the ball back. And when they see that there's no response, all 40,000 people begin to chant, throw it back, throw it back, throw it back. 15 seconds pass by, and that lonely fan is sitting there, man, I, I want to keep the ball. But right now, that lonely fan is feeling like the whole world is staring at him, and they are. <laughs> And right now he feels like he's some kind of criminal if he hangs on to that ball, which is how all Cubs fans feel. You are a criminal if you keep that ball. Well, again, when the, 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 the ballpark, the fans, when they see there's no response, now all those chants turn to boos, a giant chorus of boos. And now this person realizes, I may not get out of this ballpark alive unless I comply with their wishes. I mean, you imagine the situation, 40,000 people screaming at you, and they won't let up until you give up the ball. So finally, it happens. It always happens. The crowd wins the day. The ball comes flying back out of the stands. And the whole place just goes crazy. 40,000 people are now cheering because they convinced you to throw the ball back. It is the ultimate expression of peer pressure. Now think about it. If you were in that situation, could you resist or would you comply? I think we need to be honest. We are all affected by the people who surround us every day. Much of what we do is determined by the kind of crowd we're in. You know, why'd you end up eating in this place? This is certainly not your favorite spot, but you're here because that's where everybody else in the group wanted to go. And rather than be a sore thumb, you know, rather than make a fuss, you just, oh, I really don't like it, but everybody else does, so you just keep your mouth shut and you go along to get along. And that's not always a bad thing, but we need to be aware how every day we are much of what we do is determined because of the kind of crowd we're in. You know, years and years ago, there, were, there was a show on TV called Candid Camera. They would hide their cameras in different places to see if they could catch people doing some funny things. Well, one episode was called Face the Rear. This time, they hid their cameras inside an elevator, and then they'd watch as various people get on. And as people would come on, there would already be a bunch of people on the elevator. And what they didn't know was that all of them were actors hired by the show. So they come on the elevator, and immediately they notice everybody's facing the back wall. That's not normal. You know, normally you get on the elevator, you turn around, you face the door, you push the button, and you move on up. So this person steps on, do what they normally do, and yet everybody else in this elevator is facing the rear. So they begin to feel the pressure, and they're thinking, now, do they know something that I don't know? You know, what's, what's going on? And finally, because everybody else is doing it, and I, I don't want to be the odd man out, they end up turning around facing the back wall too. 
So then they changed the scenario. They went to a different building, a different elevator, and this time they just left the elevator empty and allowed some unsuspecting person to get on first, and they come in, doors close, they're facing the door, push the button, the elevator moves up. Very next floor, three people get on. Again, actors hired by the show, and as soon as they get in, they all face the rear. Doors close, the elevator moves on up, and now the camera zooms in in the face of this person who's getting pranked, and you can see the pressure they're feeling. Am I doing something wrong? Why am I the only one facing the front? Why are they all facing the back wall? Should I turn around too? And while they're wrestling with that dilemma, elevator stops, a fourth person gets on, again, another actor hired by the show. They get on, they face the back wall. And so it happens every time because everybody else is doing it. They turn around, face the back wall too. See, we're pack animals. We like to stay with the herd. We don't want to be out here all by ourselves. We see what everybody else is doing and we tend to do the same thing too. God knows that. God knows how easily we are influenced by other people, and that's why he put this verse in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. See, it's just a fact of life. If you lie down with a bunch of dogs, you're going to rise up with a bunch of fleas. <laughs> or to put it in a more positive way, it, there's no way you can expect your life to move in the right direction unless you intentionally surround yourself with the right kind of people. Now, that's the truth that is being taught in this verse. So let's take a look at it. Proverbs Chapter 13, verse 20 says, walk with the wise and you become wise. It has a result. See, this is why your mom always said, mind the company you keep. She knew something about you. She knew the kind of people you hang with, that's going to make a big impact upon your life. So make sure you're running with the right crowd. You walk with the wise and you become wise. But now the second line, the, the same truth is spelled out, only now it's spelled out in a negative way. You become a companion, and there's the key word. Companion. I mean, we're not talking about some kind of brief encounter where you kind of bumped into somebody, oh, sorry, pardon me, and you move on, and you never see that person again. We're not talking about that. You become a companion of fools, and you suffer harm. This word companion means special friend. It's not just anybody in general. This is somebody you like, you admire, you want to be close to them. In fact, this Hebrew word that's used here, ra'ah, for companion, it's sometimes used to describe animals, and it literally means to graze in the same pasture. See, we really are pack animals. We like to run with the herd. God knows that. But God also knows if you're grazing in the wrong pasture, if you're hanging out with the wrong people, your life's headed for trouble. So, so become a companion, become a special friend, get a really connection with the wise, and you'll become wise. But you become a companion, you become a special friend to fools, and you'll end up doing foolish things too. Now, you dig down deep underneath this verse, to try to understand why is this attraction we have to want to hang out with other people? Why is this attraction so strong? And it's because of the way we're made. It, it, deep down in their heart, every one of us has this need to be accepted by others. And we have that need because of the way God created us. God created us for community. Think of it like this. A lot of you like to spend time out in the lake. And you remember back in your teenage years when maybe it was your dad or your uncle, maybe it was a close friend, said, hey, you're going to be spending a lot of time out here in the boat. You need to learn how to operate the boat. You need to learn how to drive it. And you remember that one of the fundamental truths you were taught to get that boat started right, the engine's got to be in the water. You don't start the engine once out. You don't do it on the dock. You don't do it in the driveway. You wait until the boat is in the water, and then you start the engine. Why? Because it's the way the engine is made. It's made to sit in the water. You start it. It draws the water up and pushes the water through to keep, it, keep the engine cool. You start the engine up out of the water, and it's going to quickly overheat. So because of the way the engine's made, it's not going to function well until it's in the right environment, unless it's in the water. Well, that's a picture of us. We are made to be in community. 
we, we, we're not made to figure things out on our own. We function well only when we're drawn upon the strength and wisdom of others, when we're drawn upon their experience and their expertise, when we're drawn upon their resources. And of course, that only works if you're keeping the right company, you're hanging out with the right crowd, you put yourself in the wrong kind of community, and life gets real messy. I always find it fascinating to compare the, uh, the careers of John Elway and Dan Marino. Forgive me, ladies, it's a football illustration, but I'm a sports guy. Stay with me, I won't be here long. But I, I find it really fascinating to compare these two guys, John Elway, Dan Marino, two of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. And here's what's fascinating to me. Two of John Elway's very best seasons were the last two seasons of his career, and two of Dan Marino's worst years were the last two years of his career. Now, both guys, exceptional athletes, two of the best in the NFL. So why the difference? Because in the last two years of their careers, both men got new coaches. John Elway and his new coach, they were the best of friends. I mean, they just clicked. But Dan Marino and his new coach, they just didn't always see eye to eye. They weren't always on the same page. It was a very dysfunctional relationship, and it showed. I mean, John Elway ended his career with a bang. He ended up winning two Super Bowls. But Dan Marino, even though he's an incredible quarterback, yet his time in the NFL, he kind of finished it on a sour note. In fact, the very last game, they lost 62-7 to to the Jacksonville Jaguars, of all people. Well, both guys will tell you it was their relationship with the coach that made the difference. One felt like he had a great coach, the other one didn't. One suddenly found himself surrounded by a very good team, and it showed, and the other now found himself playing on a bad team, and it showed too. It's a book of Proverbs. Walk with the wise, you become wise. Run around with a bunch of fools, and it will diminish you. Now, at this point, it, it seems pretty cut and dried, right? It all seems pretty simple. Here are the wise. Here are the fools. You want life to go well? Hang out with this crowd. You want to stay out of trouble? Stay away from that crowd. But it's not that simple. It's a lot more complicated. Uh, many times, the reason why we allow ourselves to be influenced by the wrong crowd is because every one of us has this compelling, and I mean it's just sometimes overwhelming, desire to be accepted by others. We need to belong. Every one of us do. It's a, it's a legitimate need, but that need is really, really strong. We need to, a place where we feel like we fit in. We need a group where we feel like we are being appreciated. Always remember, when I think about this, always remember the story of Patty Hearst. She was the daughter of a wealthy, very prominent family out there in California. But back in February of 1974, she was kidnapped, kidnapped by members of the Sibionese Liberation Army. And it was a shocking story. Everybody was concerned. I mean, for the longest time, it was in all the TV news and and uh, everybody across the country was talking about, everybody was praying for Patty because we felt sorry for her. But then this surprising thing happened. A couple months later, the next time we saw Patty Hearst, there she was holding a machine gun, helping the very people who kidnapped her. She was helping them to rob a bank. It was like she had joined the other side. And man, that caught us off guard. I mean, it was just so confusing. Why would she do something like that? Why help the people who are trying to ruin your life? Because deep down in the human heart, there's this huge need, this enormous desire to want to be liked and to want to be accepted by others. And sometimes that desire is so strong, we allow ourselves to get pulled into activities or pulled into experiences that normally we'd resist. We've all done this. You did this, I did this when we were kids. Do you remember? All those kids, that group of kids there in the neighborhood that you'd run around with when, when you were little. And you remember how sometimes they would push you into doing things that you weren't always comfortable with. I mean, deep down inside, you were thinking to yourself, uh, 
I'm not sure about this. And yet, because you didn't want to come across like a loser to your friends, you decided to go along. So, you know, you'd run up on the porch and ring the doorbell, and then you'd run back out, hide behind the bushes so nobody was there when, when they opened the door. Or you'd make these crank calls on the phone where, hello, is your, is your refrigerator running? It is. Well, you better go catch it and hang up. And everybody laughed because they thought it was hilarious. And yet, deep down inside, you're thinking to yourself, that's not the way to treat other people. And yet, because your desire for acceptance was so much stronger than your desire to do what is right, you decide to stay with the crowd instead of get up and walk away. Now, we all have this tendency. And knowing that we have that tendency, we've got to fight it. And how do you fight it? Proverbs 13, 20. The best way to counteract peer pressure is to form a new group and allow that new group to become so important to you, you no longer want to hang out with that other crowd. To avoid the fools, you've got to walk with the wise and come to a place where you enjoy the company of the wise so much. There's just no appeal to want to be with that other group that's doing all these foolish things. To stay away from that other group, you've got to find a new and better place to belong. Now, right away, some people are going to object and they say, but, oh, but wait a minute, David. If we detach ourselves from those who are heading the wrong way, then how are they ever going to turn around and know the right way to go? I mean, won't they just keep drifting further and further away from the Lord? And after all, we're Christians. Don't we have an obligation to reach the lost? And how can you reach them if you're not spending time with them? How can you reach them if you don't become their friends? That's a great question. So let me answer it this way. Think of a doctor. Think of a doctor. You're sick, he's not. But in order for that doctor to be able to help you out, he's got to spend some time with you, right? sitting there in the room, asking a bunch of questions, getting to know you, find out where you've been, try to understand what's really wrong here. But in order for that doctor to be able to help you out, that is to make sure you get better and he doesn't get sick, he also has to take some precautions as he's spending time with you. He'll put on gloves, he'll put on a mask as he's giving that shot, as he's performing that examination, because if he gets sick, if he gets infected with your disease because he's been hanging around with you, now he can't help you anymore. It's only as he remains healthy that you have any chance of becoming healthy too. So to make sure that he influences you instead of you influencing him, he always takes precautions. When he comes into that room to spend some time with you, he comes in with a strategy in mind. He's there to change you, not let you change him. Look at Jesus. He is the perfect example of this. When Jesus touched the lepers, he wasn't being careless. That was intentional. He did that on purpose. And he touched them, not so he'd get their leprosy, but so that he could take their leprosy away. He was there to change them, not to be changed by them. When Jesus sat down at the dinner table with the tax collectors and sinners, he wasn't there just to join in with the crowd. Hey, I'm just here to fit in. I just want to be one of the boys. No. Instead of becoming one of them, he was there so they could become one of his, one of his disciples. In other words, Jesus walked into every one of those moments, not just with love, he walked into every one of those moments with wisdom, too. He had a strategy in mind. And notice this, too. One of the reasons why Jesus was so effective in carrying out that strategy is because he was always operating from a position of strength. You see, Jesus was part of a community, too. He had a peer group, Father, Son, and Spirit. You ever notice how many times Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're reading through there, and you watch Jesus deliberately pull away from the crowds just so he can be with his heavenly friends, his heavenly fa family, so he can be refreshed and encouraged and influenced by their strength, their wisdom, Father, Spirit. And it was only as he was being helped by then, them that then he would go out and try to minister to others. It's only from that position of strength that he could hope to strengthen others. 
Remember hearing Jesus say in the book of John, I only do what I see my father doing. See, he never just tried to figure things out on his own. He was always a part of a team. And why? He knew this principle. To be wise, you've got to walk with the wise. That's true for us, too. That's why when you're called to be a Christian, you're also called to be a part of a church because you can't do one without the other. You just can't. And here at New Hope, we believe that to be a vital part of the church, you've got to do more than just Sunday morning. Sunday, the Sunday morning experience is great, but Sunday morning's not enough. You've got, if you want to be who God wants you to be, you've got to be a part of a group too, a discipleship group, because it's there in that smaller kind of atmosphere that you have a much better chance of really getting to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you have a much greater opportunity to begin to really draw upon their strength and wisdom. And now all of a sudden you discover you've got this new peer group, this positive peer influence. Now you've got something special, something that's going to help you counteract the pressure that you have to face and deal with out there in the world on a daily basis. The Bible says to be wise and to avoid the foolish things that other people are doing, you've got to walk with the wise do you are you seeking out that kind of wisdom are you being intentional about the way in which you live your life are you deliberately placing yourself in the right kind of environment